0: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Mapping an Obsession with Gavin Francis. And his new book, Island Dreams. Gavin Francis is an award-winning writer and GP. He is the author of four books of non-fiction, including Adventures in Human Being, which was a Scottish Times bestseller and won the Soul Tire Scottish Non-Fiction Book of the Year Award and Empire Antarctica, which won Scottish Book of the Year in the SMIT Awards and was shortlisted for both the ondarte and Costa Prizes. He has written for The Guardian, The Times, The New York Review of Books and The London Review of Books, and his work is published in 18 languages. And Gavin's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Island Dreams, Mapping and Obsession. Gavin, welcome back to Little Atoms.
2: Well, thank you for having me on yet again, Neil. So this
1: book, Island Dreams, as it says in the the subtitle, is about an obsession of yours with islands, and more specifically, this idea of an island as an escape, an escape from our daily lives, our daily responsibilities. Tell me something more about that idea.
2: Well, the book grew out of a realisation that my life had taken a trajectory which moved me between periods of time in the city of intense connection and um, sort of immersing myself in possibilities and the potential of the city. And then episodes of my life of quite extreme isolation, sometimes really very extreme isolation, often on small, remote islands. And I realized that my life had this pattern of moving between one to the other. And I began to think about why that was what I was getting from the possibility of isolation, the remoteness of that and what I was getting by contrast from my periods of time in the city. And so as I began to kind of chart that and begin to make sense of that pattern my life has taken, I became really increasingly fascinated by the place in the cultural imagination that islands hold, the kinds of questions I began asking myself, or you know, why is it that Robinson Crusoe is still in print after 300 years? Why is it that Desert Island Discs is the longest-running radio show on Radio Four? Why is it that we still have so many of so many of great novels are set with their pivotal uh, fields of action on an island? Because they kind of represent something for us. They represent a kind of possibility of possibly a purity, and ab- certainly an absence of distraction for a lot of people. It's about peace silence, and I wanted to explore all these different kinds of tropes through the culture as well as how they've represented themselves in my own life. Again and again over the last thirty years,
1: and of course, in our sort of modern hyper connected world it, it becomes even more difficult to seek out periods of isolation, doesn't it?
2: yeah, in some ways, it becomes more difficult, but in other ways, I wonder we're also used to being habitually connected constantly through our phones that sometimes to feel a bit of isolation, all you need to do nowadays is switch your phone off and um It can give you a little hint of the thrill that maybe a century ago, people had to go a lot further to try and get So yeah, I think there's something there to tease out between isolation from others and over connection to others you know sometimes um, what i see in the clinic is that our um, our huge amount of connection that we've got through social media and through the possibilities offered by our phones can sometimes be bad for our mental health as well we need a little bit of isolation in order to keep good mental health i think and that's another theme that i wanted to really um thrash out through the pages of the book
1: in terms of the ideas of isolation you talk about the work of the psychiatrist Donald Winnicott who was someone whose work I'd not come across before so tell us Mm -hmm. who he was and and what his thoughts on the importance of isolation were.
2: Winnicott is a wonderful uh, writer, certainly. He was a psychoanalyst, a child psychiatrist. Um, Through the 50s, he had a a regular spot on the radio, um, and the short radio essays he did for that are published in a a collection I can recommend to everybody called um, The Child, the Family, and the Outside World. And although they're 60, 70 years out of date, they still feel really very, very relevant. And one of the themes that Winnicott was particularly interested in was how much we need a modicum of isolation or a measure of isolation in order to maintain good mental health. And he proposed a distinction between isolation, which is good for us, and insulation, which is bad for us. He thought that psychopathology sometimes happened and people became mentally very unwell when they became too insulated and too cut off from the world. But similarly, if people didn't have the opportunity to explore a little bit of isolation, that too would be bad for their mental health.
1: You mentioned also that the book talks about um, the appearance of islands in literature, and I wanted to talk about a couple of examples. I mean, you mentioned, obviously, Robinson Crusoe, but perhaps let's talk about the real-life Robinson Crusoe, Alexander Selkirk. Um, tell us again who he was.
2: Selkirk was, uh, he was a Tanner's son who grew up in Fife, not far from where I grew up in Scotland, and um, there's not much known about his early life. Other than when he was 17 years old, he was called to the Kirk Session, which should have been, I suppose, the local magistrate equivalent, to answer charges of being unruly or brawling. And the Kirk Session recorded that he didn't show up having gone to sea. And so he went to sea through the later 17th century, and uh, he became a, a kind of like a navigator on ships that were ultimately pirate ships, privateering expeditions. And in the early 18th century, he... Tried to force a mutiny of one of these privateering ships somewhere in the South Pacific because he believed his ship was unseaworthy, and the mutiny failed. And the captain marooned him on uh, Juan Fernandez Island, just off the coast of Chile. Well, a few hundred miles off the coast of Chile, and he he survived there for four and a half years. Famousl,y came back to London a wealthy man because another pirate ship. Eventually rescued him, and he he got rich on the booty. They managed to reap on their homeward journey. And um, Defoe, Daniel Defoe, heard about this man. He was interviewed. He was a kind of celebrity when he got back to London, and lots of journalists interviewed him. It's thought very much that the Robinson Crusoe story is based on on Selkirk and his adventures.
1: And you mentioned the actual island, Juan Fernandez Island, off the coast of Chile, and and it's it's a place where other people were subsequently.
2: You know, Mm. shipwrecked,
1: it was a a notorious island.
2: Yeah, I think it was quite I mean it had, there was plenty for him to eat because previous Spanish expeditions had let loose wild goats there deliberately so that if any expedition was passing that island they would always know they'd be able to stop there and get fresh meat. So there were um, lots of seals, lots of crayfish to eat, there was wild goats. He about two years into his isolation a ship approached the coast and, and Selkirk ran down thinking he was going to be rescued but it was a Spanish ship And of course, um, as someone from the island of Britain, he would have been enslaved or killed if he'd been caught by them. So he ran and he was chased into the woods by the Spaniards, but they didn't catch him. It was another two years later before a a British ship came and and he was rescued. Yeah, and subsequently also there's, um, there's further stories. There's a lovely book by George Shelvock, who was another pirate. Uh, 10, 15 years later, who also put in to Juan Fernandez and and offloaded some mutineers and refitted his ship there.
1: So Treasure Island, obviously, uh, literally a novel um, by um, Robert Louis Stevenson about an island. Um, And rather than talk about Treasure Island, I want to talk about uh, Stevenson's own obsession with islands and and his relationship with Samoa that you talk about in the book.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, he, um, you know, Stevenson had this Kind of love-hate relationship with his hometown of Edinburgh, um, where I live now. It was bad for his health. He was desperate to get away. He was a, a very kind of wealthy, famous celebrity by the time he was into his 40s, um, late 30s, 40s, and um, he moved, yep, to Samoa to the island of Upolu with his wife and uh, stepson. And uh, it's beautiful reading his letters from that time when he moved to Samoa. He died there of a brain hemorrhage. And um, the letters he wrote to his friends, he had a a literary executor, a chap called Sidney Colvin, talk about this great peace that he found there. You know, away from the demanding literary scene of of Sydney, which he could have been on the way to, of California, New York, away from um, London and Edinburgh. He found a great peace just uh, planting his garden, digging his garden on the uh, on the shores of the Pacific. And um I think when I read that, when I read the letters that Stevenson sent back, I was reminded very much of the um the Yates poem, you know, the very famous Yeats poem about a lake island, a lake island is free. And it says exactly the same thing, you know, I'll find my peace there planting my rows of beans, essentially, on the lake island. And so it's another example, I think, of that kind of cultural fascination that we have with the idea of finally getting some peace, getting some absence of distraction. I want to talk about
1: some of your your own travels to islands over the years, and I, and I guess we should start relatively close to home and look at some of the islands that you talk about in Scotland. Obviously, you know some of the um, you know the Hebrides. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, harris and Lewis, but particularly i wanted to talk about some of the tiny islands that you talk about mm. um inch keith and uh, the isle of may which is which is an
2: island that has um quite a lot of importance to you over the years yeah yeah well When I was a a little boy, I used to have my family holidays were caravan holidays in the east of Fife. And quite often, as I would fall asleep in the the caravan awning, I would look out and see this lighthouse blinking on Isle of May. It's about five miles offshore, a small island. It's it's just under a mile long. And um, it's a bird reserve. There's nobody lives there year round, but there's um, nature wardens live there in the summertime. And I was kind of I was fascinated by this place. I was given a book of artwork, paintings of the bird life and the wildlife of the island. And I dreamed one day of going there. And then it was only much later in my life when I was at a very hectic stage. I was training as a junior surgeon. I had a, a very busy, stressful job in my late 20s. That This island came back to me at a moment of my life when I really needed some silence and some rest. And I applied... Um, when my surgical rotation was finished, I applied to become a volunteer warden there. And so went straight from the high dependency units of the busy city hospital to essentially clearing paths and digging out wells and ringing birds in this place that was utterly utterly different and it wasn't it wasn't solitary because there was a wonderful community of of ornithologists and and naturalists that lived there during the summer and it kind of exemplified that transition from the city to the island exemplified the tension the kind of opposing allures that I'm trying to to map out with this book about how both of them offer a kind of richness and and have value but the value comes almost in the contrast and in the transitions between the two I want to talk about another
1: journey that you took um, and this Mm. one was in East Africa a particularly fractious time but you end up on an Mm. island called Lamu
2: this was um, following a period of time working in a small East African hospital. It was a very kind of stressful time politically in the country. There'd been a lot of riots and um, traveling at that time had been quite difficult. There was uh, very few tourists and that had made a lot of the people who depend on tourism a lot more uh, difficult to deal with, a lot more desperate in many ways. And I remember traveling up the coast from Mombasa up past Kilifi um, and Malindi, and eventually reaching this place, Lamu Island. And when we, when I got off the, when I got off the boat to Lamu and jumped in, it was kind of with my rucksack balanced on my head, thigh deep in this tropical water. It was like, again, as if this complete transformation had taken place. And the atmosphere on that island was, was beautiful, very, very welcoming, very gentle. There was the, none of the stress and the difficulties of traveling on the continental mainland that I'd just left. And I was reminded when I made that of auden has got something um, lovely to say about islands too. He W.H. Auden wrote a, a poem. It was actually about Iceland, but I think it stands for a lot of islands. When he said that this is an island and therefore unreal. And there's a certain unreality to certain kinds of islands when we go there as outsiders. Of course, there's different when you're living on, on an island, when you're part of the community on that island. And that's maybe something else we'll have time to touch on. But um, one of the things I was interested in approaching with this book is not particularly the tensions of living in a small community on an island, which I have done. But of what it's like to go there from a much busier urban metropolitan kind of environment.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Gavin Francis, and we're talking about his latest book, Island Dreams Mapping an Obsession. And, Gavin, I want to go on to communities on islands now because you spent mm. some time at a monastery on Mount Athos in Greece. Mm-hmm. At a monastery. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that experience.
2: Well,. I'd read a little bit about Athos. I mean, anybody who loves travel writing will have read um, Patrick Lee um, Fairmore's books. Patrick Lee Fairmore loved Athos and visited there um, at the end of his great journey uh, that went into become a time of gifts. Bruce Chatwin too was a great fan of Mount Athos and I'd read Robert Byron's book about Athos, and I knew that it was quite a difficult place to get to. That you had to be accepted by the monks, and you had to get a kind of certificate or permit to be able to to go there. And you had to sail there from a small port near Thessaloniki. And so, a very kind of you have to be a man. <laughs> yeah, you have to have a Y chromosome um for some reason. I'm not sure how closely they check to be honest. I think uh, I did I, I remember I did have to show my birth certificate, but you know, birth certificates can be uh, erroneous. Anyway, um I sailed there at a very kind of another very kind of uh, testing time in my life and was welcomed into this world that hadn't changed at all really for a millennium in so many ways some things the monks had adopted of modern technology you know they had solar panels and things like that but other things were completely unchanged over a thousand years and the monks there have taken a, a vow of hospitality so once you have one of these permits then they take you in and they give you two meals a day in a bed for the night and it's possible to to just walk slowly around this um peninsula around this holy mountain of Athos, staying in the monasteries wherever you like, wherever you turn up to.
1: The idea of the religious attraction of, of islands of isolation is threaded through the book as well. And you talk about mm. Iona, for instance, at, at one point, but also the travels of the, the various Irish monks, including St mm. Brendan, um, mm-hmm. to various different far-flung islands.
2: Adam Nicholson has a lovely thing to say in his book about the Shant Islands serum, where he, he says that the association of islands with holiness predates anything christian and um, this is a very kind of very old association and in the book i try to make this connection almost between these places that we almost set aside for reverence like iona like inchcomb near um, edinburgh where i live like um like athos there's similar examples throughout asia but at the same time we use these spaces also for prisons because they offer that same kind of um there's no possibility of going in and out that almost increases their holiness, but it also increases their utility as places to put uh, prisoners and offenders. So I wanted to try to tease out this association that they have not only with peace, but also with imprisonment, not only with reverence, but also with with transformation and the possibility of transformation that they offer. So yeah, uh, St. Columbo and Iona, as example, St. Brendan and the Voyage of St. Brendan visits all these different islands in the um, in the North Atlantic. And um, right here in my own front yard, you know, I've got Inchcombe, which has got a very ancient abbey. And just down the coast, there's the Bass Rock, which was used as a prison.
1: Um, and another prison island that you talk about, um, former prison island, is the Andaman Islands, which is somewhere mm. that is still, you know, relatively difficult to visit.
2: Yeah, no, I I visited the Andamans from um, from Chennai. I, f- I flew there to this archipelago, which from the outside just looks like a paradise. It just looks like all our picture postcard stereotypes. Of what paradise palm tree, yellow, bright yellow sand, turquoise water type of place, but yeah, they were a really brutal prison operated by the the British Raj for Indian dissidents, and um when I walked around that prison complex where they were still keeping the gallows freshly painted, and I read the stories of what had gone on there, that kind of disjuncture almost between um the peace that's possible in islands, but the horror that's possible on them too was really brought home to me
1: we talked before obviously about empire antarctica your book a few years ago and also in this book you talk about often the travel to your time spent in the antarctic and various Mm -hmm. places um islands in the south atlantic but also in sort of you know the 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 far south tierra del fuego Mm -hmm. south america um and i just wanted you to tell us a little bit more about what those sort of places were like to visit
2: yeah, well, when I, I sailed as the ship's doctor one October from Immingham, uh, Humberside, uh, on a British Antarctic supply ship. And we sailed down, of course, you know, we passed, passed Madeira, passed the Canary Islands, passed um, the Fernando de Noronha, uh, the Azores, all the way down to the Falkland Islands. And then from the Falklands, um we went on to South Georgia, the South Orkney Islands and all the way down to um South Sandwich and then eventually Antarctica itself. And um I don't know, I it's hard to really to sum it up. I mean as you as you point out, I wrote a whole book about it, didn't I? Empire Antarctica um talks a lot about that journey, um the narrative itself. Uh, starts quite a long way into the book of Antarctica because I wanted to, to bring that journey to life so much. And approaching the Falkland Islands, it's just, um, they've got penguin rookeries on the Falklands that the layers of guano under those rookeries show continuous occupation for the last two million years. I mean, the, the scale of the idea of world without humans is really evident there. It's everywhere just under the surface. And you can see that, that human intervention has, has been scratched so lightly onto those islands, whether I'm talking about the Falklands or, or South Georgia or the South Orkneys. The South Orkney Islands are wonderful to visit. I mean, they're so beautiful. They're kind of like, it's kind of like imagining the most dramatic Alaskan glaciers you can you can picture but then imagine the whole thing sunk into a kind of iron sea and there's almost no plant life there at all there's some mosses but yet they are heaving with life the beaches are just heaving with seals elephant seals fur seals all kinds of different birds and whales are spouting all around the island because it's part of the the south atlantic that where the the warm water of the atlantic meets the polar sea and that brings a kind of churning of life to the surface so Although some people might think of those places as kind of dead or remote, they were actually they were thrumming thrumming with life and they were they offered this really kind of vital glimpse of what the planet is like without human beings. I I really, really valued my my time getting to see those
1: places um, just one more question then from me and then I'd, I'd like you to, mm. to read a bit of, of Island Dreams for us if you would um, so I mean I would normally expect to, to get to get to the end of this interview and ask you you know whether or not throughout the journeys in this book you ever did come to some sort of resolution about <laughs> about that paradox that you mentioned at the beginning but of course life for everybody has been um, has been sort of overwhelmed this past year by, by a global pandemic and and mm. I know that you have a another book coming out in the new year about mm-hmm. working through the pandemic which we will obviously talk about in the new year when it comes oh, out yeah I'd love to but just give us a brief idea of, of what it's been like to work as a GP through this pandemic
2: oh well it's just been um I mean it I think it's quite good to regularly acknowledge just how bloody awful this full year has been, I think. I think um, everybody should regularly remind themselves that it's all right to acknowledge this has just been a terrible year. My work, my GP work, which I love um, has been made so difficult. It's been kind of transformed out of all recognition from what it used to be because of the necessity of diminishing the footfall through the practice because of the importance of protecting my most um, vulnerable patients, because of the the difficulty, especially in the early months, of getting adequate access to testing and diagnosis for COVID. It's really pushed us all into a set of extreme circumstances with regard to how we can actually practice medicine safely and look after, keep the rest of the NHS show on the road. But at the same time, I've just been astonished how brilliantly red tape has been slashed huge faith has been put in people's professionalism the kind of barriers between different silos of the professions that I deal with have just all come tumbling down and so that's something we've got to take from this that's been really really positive um you know the facility now with which I communicate with all the other different professionals that I have to in order to ensure the good care of my patients has just improved immeasurably this year, as well as all the kinds of things that we can now do IT-wise in terms of, you know, uh, this time last year, I couldn't sit in my GP surgery and patch myself through to a patient's smartphone and have a video consultation but now it's something I do every day in order to avoid the possibility of them having to come to the surgery so we're now in this kind of strange state where we've been through it all before you know we went through the dreadful early months of the lockdown and we we managed to get the numbers down of all the COVID cases and now they're climbing again they're not climbing as fast because we've got all these measures in, in place but they're definitely climbing it's almost like we're listening to a bit of a reprise at the moment you know we know the tune and it's been fleshed out in some different harmonies at the moment but we know the tune and we were much much better prepared for it this time around so although i'm i'm quite pessimistic for this winter i think it's going to be very very hard certainly the hardest winter i've ever worked in my medical career but on the other hand I'm optimistic about all the things that we've learned and how much better we're getting at managing this disease and how much better we're getting at knowing how to um, how to ensure good lockdowns and keep people safe. So you asked me um, if I would just read a little bit from the beginning of the book that just sets the scene. I should say that this book is chock-a-block full of old maps and um, the maps are a way for me not only of giving the text a bit of, breathing space but of allowing like a conversation almost between the text that you read that comes from me as the writer and also the reader's own imagination when they can look at the map and and imagine the place for themselves so when i read this i want you all to imagine an 18th century map of Shetland uh, with the islands colored in pink crisscrossed with uh, old navigational marks obsolete navigational marks and um, edged with blue, and uh, that's the map that accompanies this this kind of opening reading. Hitchhiking north through the islands of Shetland, a Land Rover stopped for me. The driver was a man of about 40. He wore a gas-blue boiler suit, and his beard was flecked with white. Where are you bound, he asked, with a voice like rust and sea spray, an accent more Norse than Scots. Unst, I said. He told me that off the island of Unst, the northernmost of the Shetland Islands. A black-browed albatross had been seen, a species accustomed to the skerries of the subantarctic. It must have crossed the equator in a storm, he said, and got disorientated, took one look at Unst and thought, that looks like home. I was in search of distant islands, in love with the idea that on a patch of land, protected by a circumference of sea, the obligations and irritations of life would dissolve and a singular clarity of mind would descend. It proved more complicated than that. Thinking of islands often returns me in memory to the municipal library I visited as a child. The library was one of the grandest buildings in town entered directly from the street through heavy brass doors, each one tessellated in panes of glass thick as lenses. By age eight or nine, I'd exhausted the children's library and been given an adult borrower's ticket. But as my mother browsed the shelves, often as not, I'd sit down on the scratchy carpet tiles and open an immense atlas, running my fingers over distant and unreachable archipelagos, as if reading Braille. I hardly dared hope I'd reach any of them, and that I've reached a few is something of a relief. And so the love of islands is always, for me, been inextricable from the love of maps. Cartographers know that to isolate and distill the features of a portion of the Earth's surface in all its inexpressible complexity is to exert power over it. To transfer that distillation onto paper is in some way to encompass it. But it could be said that maps offer only the illusion of understanding a landscape. Encompass, from the Latin en, meaning to make or to put in, and compass, to surround, contain, envelop, enclose with steps. Perhaps island maps reined in by their coasts offer a special case. They invite the viewer to indulge the imagination, pace a dreamed perimeter. I've always found old maps intoxicating in their wavering outlines, archaic scripts, obsolete navigational marks. They are palimpsests of the way islands have been imagined over the centuries. In the famous world map in his atlas of 1570, Ortelius injected vast tracts of pure imagination, including a river of islands draining a mysterious southern continent. By their omissions, all maps leave room for the imagination and for dreams.
1: So I've been talking to Gavin Francis. We've been talking about his latest book, Island Dreams, Mapping an Obsession which is out now from Gate, Gavin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you, Neil. Always a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.